Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. Uh, last Sunday on Easter, we began this message series entitled Think, and we're looking at the amazing minds that God has given us and how He intends for us to use them to think rightly, especially in the confusing times that we find ourselves in right now. Neuroscientists have um, used the brain scan technology that's been coming on for the last 15 years or so to estimate that the average person thinks about 50,000 thoughts per day. That's a lot of thoughts. And they've demonstrated that those thoughts have tremendous power over us. Science can now demonstrate that every thought that we have sends electrical and chemical signals throughout our brain, ultimately affecting every cell in our body. But what cannot be seen on these brain scans is a decision that I want to talk about this morning that we've all made that turns out to affect every thought that we have following that decision. And that is the decision to turn our hearts and therefore our lives away from God. This decision that we've all made to different degrees is described in the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. And it describes not only the decision, but the impact this decision has had on our thinking in particular. So here's what it says. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened starts out by stating the obvious fact that God is invisible, and therefore we can't just look and see the qualities that describe the nature of God. But that doesn't mean that we are in the dark about His existence. All we need in order to clearly see God is creation. We just step outside, look out in front of us, look up, and there are two things about God that can clearly be seen, even though He's invisible. These are the two things that are mentioned, his eternal power and his divine nature. What does that mean? Well, first of all, the power. It's pretty obvious that there's a tremendous amount of power in this universe and in this world. And so it takes a lot of effort to convince a mind that there is absolutely no power behind everything that exists. That is an illogical thought for us. Given all of the power there is, we just have this understanding that there's got to be a great power that's behind everything that we see in this physical world. And then divine nature is the second thing we can see. Divine nature means literally a God-level mind or personhood. You know, there's a tremendous amount of complexity in this world, and as science is advancing, we are able to see more and more, uncover more and more that we knew before, and it's apparent that the complexity is far greater than we had ever imagined, and far more elegant and sophisticated in its complication. And so that points to the fact that there must be some intelligence or some mind behind this complexity. Again, it takes a lot of ignoring of the obvious to be convinced that this just randomly happened that all of this complexity just fell into place, given chance and time. It takes a lot of twisting of the mind for that to make sense. Instead, 
this creation points clearly to a plan and a mind behind that plan. So if you can look up at the night sky or out at a sunset and think that there is no God, it's not because the evidence for his existence is that hard to see. It's because you've already decided that you don't want there to be a God. You've made that decision. So what that means is, though, even though down deep in your soul, you know, you're not going to admit it to anyone, maybe not even yourself, but down, down deep, you know about God's existence. But you have decided you don't want to honor him. You don't want to live your life in light of what he says. You certainly don't want to thank him, as it mentions here. You instead have decided to set your mind on and to build your life around what you want, your truth, not God's truth. This phrase, my truth, is commonly heard now in our culture, in the modern cultures around the world. And what it says, very obviously, is that no one is going to tell me what is right and what is wrong, other than me. The only truth that matters is my truth. I decide what is true. I'm the final authority on truth. There is no one over me. That's the idea of my truth. Now, it's not just the atheists who do this. We've all chosen our truth over God's truth in various ways. We've all given God far less honor than he deserves. And we've taken far more credit than we deserve. And we've all done far more complaining than thanking. And so whether we are a declared atheist or we are acting like one in certain areas of our life, it has had an impact on how we think. What this verse is saying is that whenever we think with our backs turned against God, two things happen in the way we think. First, our thinking becomes futile. Secondly, our foolish hearts are darkened. The word futile means to conduct an unsuccessful search. Now, without God, let me be clear, our minds still work, and they work very well. We are fully capable of tremendous thoughts, of successful thoughts. We can solve all kinds of problems, and we can create successful careers. But when it comes to the search that our soul is really on, we are not able to do that. You know, we're not just searching for a successful career. We're searching for purpose, deep meaning, lasting joy. And without God, our thinking in the pursuit of these matters keeps going around and around and around as we search but never arrive, never find what we're really looking for apart from God. In other words, like being lost out in the woods, we keep coming back to the same spot we were, realizing I'm going around in circles. We think in circles. It's kind of like this. I want you to take a look at this clip. This is a good il illustration or image of what our thinking is like in its circular nature. So let's take a look at this. Hey, 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 take it easy, man. Over here, there's a pile of rocks waving at you. Here. Yeah, I'm actually a thing. I'm a being. 
Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Cork. I'm kind of like the leader in here. I'm made of rocks, as you can see, but don't let that intimidate you. You don't need to be afraid unless you're made of scissors. <laughs> Just a little rock, paper, scissor joke for you. This is my very good friend over here, Meek. He's an insect and has knives for hands. You're a crone, aren't you? That I am. How'd you end up in here? Oh, well, I tried to start a revolution, but didn't print enough pamphlets, so hardly anyone turned up, except for my mum and her boyfriend, who I hate. As punishment, I was forced to be in here and become a gladiator. Bit of a promotional disaster, that one. But I'm actually organising another revolution. I don't know if you'd be interested in something like that. Do you reckon you'd be interested? Ah, uh, yeah, nah, this whole thing is a circle. But not a real circle, more like a freaky circle. This doesn't make any sense. Nah, nothing makes sense here, man. The only thing that does make sense is that nothing makes sense. That's kind of the, what the experience of thinking in circles is like. This is what my truth thinking is like. And it's not just circular thinking, it's kind of a freaky circle. And I say that because the circles of thought don't just go round and round. It turns out that they are a spiral that goes down and down, deeper and deeper, into greater and greater darkness. As it says, our foolish hearts are darkened. Our thinking becomes futile, and our foolish hearts are darkened. What that means is over time, as we get more and more desperate to find what we're looking for, we resort to darker and darker measures and methods of trying to find what we're looking for. But the joy that we're looking for, the meaning we're looking for, keeps eluding us. And this circular downward path of thinking occurs on two levels, primarily on the individual level, but also on the cultural level. We're aware of it more on the individual level as we make our decisions and experience the futility of the results we're looking for, but cultures help us in our thinking. The culture's thinking is powerful because it it gives us a kind of master thought map for us to do our thinking within. And we tend to unknowingly adopt most of the thoughts of our culture, and then we tweak them. We, we make our own modifications and feel like we're independent thinkers when really we're pretty much thinking like everybody else is. I want to examine the cultural thought map that we find ourselves in right now. Our culture is thinking in two dominant spirals right now. And I think it's helpful to understand because these affect us and they affect our neighbors and our friends and our family members. The first spiral of thinking that our culture is working on right now, I call the moral spiral. The moral spiral, and it's characterized by this key characteristic. Having rights is replacing being right. This is where we find ourselves right now. Now, both having rights and being right are equally important. Being right simply says the truth is really important. It's, it really matters to be right, to know what the truth is. This is the reason we argue. The reason we argue is because we're convinced being right is important, and Getting it wrong has consequences. And so if it's someone we care about and we think they've got something wrong, we are willing to argue with them because that's how important we think the truth is. Having rights 
says freedom is important. What having rights says is while being right is important, it's important to get it right, but having rights says it's important to let people get it wrong. This is why, while we feel truth is important, we can still disagree sanely with each other if we understand that freedom is also important. Because freedom understands that we are not the boss of people. We're not in charge of people. They are free to think, even if they get it wrong. And therefore, they have the freedom to disagree with us. Now, ideally, it's best when both of these are held in proper tension. They're both valued, and they're held in proper tension. And that prevents either one from dominating the other. Because the tendency is the other one has enough energy to try to take over the opposite, the counterpart. But they need to be held in proper tension. Kind of like balancing on a bike. They, they both must be held. So if being right dominates, what happens then in that culture is those who are in power force everyone to submit to whatever they think is right. And that culture becomes a dangerous and harsh place, both for thinking and for living. This has been the primary model of history. Those who are in power impose by force what they think is right. And in the process, they crush people. They roll over people, and there is no freedom. But if, on the other hand, having rights begins to dominate, then that culture loses its moral breaks. What happens is any concern about what is right and what is wrong is replaced with an increasing number of rights until everyone has a legal claim to do whatever they want to do. That culture then loses its ability to tell anyone that they're wrong because having rights has now replaced being right. And that is where we are right now in our culture. The takeover is not complete, but we are definitely, the, the upper hand is in the having rights side, the freedom side over the truth side. How did we get here? Well, like always, we thought our way here. 245 years ago, a group of individuals pursuing, pursuing freedom got this tension between being right and having rights pretty well right. They nailed it. They wrote a document we're all familiar with and have benefited greatly from. It's called the Declaration of Independence. Here is the key phrase that we all know out of that document. It says this, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, democracy was not a brand new idea invented by the writers of the Declaration of Independence, the founders of our nation. It was not a brand new idea. In fact, democracy had been tried many times in various forms since Greece. 
What was new about the founding of our nation was this idea of rights that came from God. This was the first time that idea had made its way into the formation of a government. In other words, the right to be free and therefore wrong. Where did they get this idea and embed it into our original documents? John Adams wrote the Declaration of Independence together with Thomas Jefferson. The two of them wrote it. There's a lot of input, obviously, the, con the Congress voted on it, but these, they were the two writers, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson. And John Adams, who therefore was one of the two writers of this Declaration of Independence, he told us where these ideas came from in his thinking. He said it in a speech on July 4th, 1837. Here's an excerpt from that speech. You can look it up. This is what he said. Is it not that the Declaration of Independence first organized a social compact on the foundation of the Redeemer's mission upon earth? He's speaking of Jesus, the Redeemer. That it laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. He's saying the Declaration of Independence in his thinking, the cornerstone of that document, he says, was the first precepts of the Christian faith. What he's saying is the Declaration of Independence was built on the foundation of Jesus' teaching. Jesus taught that people are free, and they have the right to be wrong. He didn't just teach this with words. He taught this with his life. When he was arrested and falsely put on trial, they definitely had him wrong. But Jesus would not allow Peter to draw his sword, his disciples to rise up in armed conflict. He would not lift a finger to prevent them from doing what was wrong. They had the right to get it wrong. Wrong enough even to crucify him. Why? Because we've all been given, as the, Bill or the Declaration of Independence says, unalienable rights. What does that mean? What does the word unalienable mean? It's hard to even say. It means incapable of being alienated from or separated from. What it means is these rights can't be taken from you. They can't be even given away by you. Why? Because they've been given to you by your creator. They have been endowed by their creator, it says. God gave us the right to be wrong. He did not abolish right and wrong in doing so. He just gave us the freedom to choose for him, against him, right or wrong. And if God gives people the freedom to choose between right and wrong, who are we to deny them that same freedom? A verse that says this very clearly is Romans 14, verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? God's the judge. You're not. To his own master, to God, he stands or falls. You're not in charge of the universe. God is. This is important to understand. God is the only one with the power to hold these two, having rights and being right, in proper tension. He holds them in right tension. 
You see, because as the judge, he is the one with the final word on what is right and wrong. So that's a reason to keep all the truth seekers in check. The people who insist on everyone getting it right. That keeps them in check because they're not the final judge. They may have an idea about what is right that doesn't make it right. Their paper will be graded at the end like everyone's paper by God. They are not the final judge. God is. And with God in place... There is also a reason to keep the freedom seekers in check. Because one day, they will also stand before God and have their moral decisions evaluated. Not their freedom evaluated, their moral decisions. The problem is, the spiritual landscape of our culture has shifted a great deal in the past 245 years since our nation was founded. For most... God is no longer a factor. Even whether they say there is a God, but practically, he's not really a factor. And what that means is, we have spent the past 245 years enjoying the fruits of unprecedented freedom. Unlike any other nation. And because we've all grown to love freedom, and this last year was a great example of how much we love freedom. We are not about to give it up. We want freedom. The problem is, without God, we've lost the basis for true freedom. God is the one that says, you have the right to be wrong. But if there is no God, where does that right come from? So we now need a new reason for freedom. And we found one. The founders of our nation believed that the God of the Bible was the basis for freedom. You know, Jesus is the one that told us to love our enemies. Those who disagree and are opposed to us. So unlike every previous government before it, the founders of this nation wanted a way to protect minorities from the powerful. That's the way human history has gone. Those in power get to decide what is right. What do we say? Might is right. Well, the ones who drafted the original documents of our country, they were fleeing Europe because they were minorities there. So they, that's why they created the Bill of Rights to protect the weak from the strong. But without God, as I said, Without the God of the Bible, we need a new reason to grant people these kind of rights. And here's the new reason. My truth. My truth is simply the belief that no one is wrong. This means that rights are now centered not in God, who gave them to us, but in myself. And therefore, now there is going to be an unlimited number of rights. Because anytime I meet resistance for what I want to do, I'm going to declare that I have the right to do that. And if there is no God who can limit rights, who can limit freedom, then freedom is going to take over, and pretty soon being right is not going to exist. This is the direction we're on. We're not there yet, 
but boy, are we moving fast. So the argument goes like this, this my truth, the belief that no one is wrong. You've probably heard this argument, but I want to summarize it for you so you can understand this is the argument. This is the argument. In the past, it was people thinking that they were right that led to all of the wars and all of the atrocities of the past. So the way you correct the mistakes of the past is to get rid of this thought, this poisonous thought that you're right. You got to get rid of that. So the enemy now, in this new way of thinking, is the person who's not accepting of everything. That's the new enemy. So rather than, okay, there's been mistakes in the past, there's been mistakes in my past. Rather than the goal has always been, we've got we to get it right. We can't get it wrong like they did. We've got to get it right. Now the goal is, no, let's just stop this whole notion that, you, that there is any right and there is any wrong. That's how you establish freedom now without God. So this openness, this everything is okay, is now seen as the basis of a free society. And that has replaced the God-given rights that used to be the traditional basis for American freedom. There's a pesky little problem with this new basis for freedom. We all seem pretty attached to what we think is right. People still argue. Why? Because they think being right matters. I mean, what do you feel when someone says something that you think is wrong? You start getting a little upset, right? Why? Well, you haven't been fully educated enough yet. Because you think being right is important. And therefore, you're kind of connected to the truth. So how do you weaken this natural attachment that we all seem to have to the truth? I mean, if you want to explain two-year-old life, this, this attachment, they may be wrong, but boy, they're committed to what they think is right. And we're a little more sophisticated than two-year-olds, but we're pretty much the same way. So how do you weaken this natural attachment to the truth? Well, there's been several ways this has been done over the last about 50 or 60 years. But one of the primary ways I want to mention is it's been done primarily through the study of other cultures. The idea is this. The persistence of different truths in the cultures of the world means that belief is just a preference produced by one's time and one's place. So again, let me say it this way. If you look around the world, you'll find a lot of different opinions about what is right and what is wrong in the area of morals, in the area of God. Cultures disagree around the whole world. And so the thought is that this disagreement, all of these different truths, point to the idea that it's really just a cultural preference, a personal preference, really, that comes out of one's unique time and one's unique place. It isn't real in that sense, like physical truth. And what this thought has done is it has moved moral truth and religion in general from the realm of knowledge to that of opinion. 
That's just an opinion. You can't know because there's so much difference. This, now, I wish I had time to go into the fallacies of this argument, but I don't. This is the dominant thought. Most people in our culture have become convinced of this. And the effect of this thinking has been to remove the moral breaks of our culture and send our culture spinning off and down morally. So now what was immoral 10 years ago is now celebrated as courage in just 10 years. In fact, the moral spiral is spinning so fast now that those who lead the moral change often find themselves getting run over by it. It's coming back around them and running them over. I mean, politicians and celebrities who used to be out in front of this moral change now have to find themselves apologizing for what they said just six years ago. Or they have to get run over and destroyed by the new morals that are coming up fast behind them. I mean, our current president's campaign was basically an apology tour. He said to apologize for everything he said or did up till about four or five years ago. This is the way it is now because the spiral, is, it's spinning so fast, no one can keep up with it. And people keep getting run over by the new morals that are just whoop, coming up fast behind them. Now, I'm not getting into what is right and wrong yet. I'm just getting into the, the notion that there is no wrong. And therefore, there are no breaks. What we think matters. And what's happening right now is, is a pretty interesting flip. In the past, historically, most of the running over of people, the atrocities, have been done in the name of people who thought they were doing what was right. They were wrong, but they thought they were right. Now, the having rights side is becoming the harsh tyrant that the being right side has always been historically. Now that the power shifts is occurring and having rights has more power than being right, they are willing to ruin people to advance the moral agenda. That's the moral spiral. And that contributes to and has led to a spiral that has been around for a lot longer than this one. The moral spiral, at least our version of it, is, is pretty new in history. This second one I want to talk about is as old as human history. It's the happiness spiral. The key characteristic of this spiral is sensuality is replacing sensitivity. Sensuality is replacing sensitivity. This spiral is described in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. This is what we read. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Here it is. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. 
this is a moral black hole with a gravitational pull that without God's help you can't get out of. The two basic orientations in life are outward or inward focusing. A person who is inward oriented does everything from a selfish motive. A person who is outward oriented lives for something bigger than themselves. The two words that describe these two differences, these two orientations are sensitivity and sensuality. The root of both words is the word sense. God has given us all the ability to sense our world, to perceive reality. The purpose of our five senses is so that we can accurately perceive the real world and then adjust to it. And when we do that, we are being sensitive to our surroundings. We are adjusting to our surroundings. Our senses are focusing outward. The radar is going outward. Now, we're, we're going to use our senses to walk out of this room today. And therefore, we will adjust our course and find open doors rather than walk into walls. We are being sensitive to our environment. We are adjusting to our environment. If we get it wrong, we'll hurt ourselves and maybe others because the world that we live in is real. It is not sensitive. The world isn't sensitive. It won't adjust to us. If we defy it, it will crush us. We have to adjust to it. But the world we live in is not just a physical world. It's also a spiritual world. It's a world in which the invisible God lives. And so God gave us the ability not only to sense physical reality, but to sense this spiritual, invisible reality. We experience it primarily, not exclusively, but primarily as emotions. What this means is when we decide to turn away from God, we have all felt that. We may not know that's what it is, but we felt it. We don't feel it physically, like if we defied physical reality and ran into a wall, we feel it emotionally. So we feel guilty, and we feel empty, and we feel fearful, and we feel sad because we are sensing the reality of turning away from God. There may be some smaller reasons, but that's the big reason. And when we turn our backs away from God, we have to find a way to cope with these bad feelings. And we do so by switching our orientation from sensitive to sensual. So the goal of sensitivity is to feel reality. The radar is outward, to adjust to it. But the goal of sensitivity is just to feel good. The radar now is focused inward. What can I do to feel better? So the sensitive use their senses for a bigger purpose. But for the sensual, their senses are the point. Feeling better now is their one and only goal. It's their main purpose. And this selfish orientation comes with some significant side effects. As it says, their thinking becomes futile. They get in a circle. They keep coming up with plans to feel better, and they feel a little better, and then they feel worse. It doesn't work out. Their search is unsuccessful. And that's because a sensual thinker is, as it says here, thinking in the dark. This is the same combination we saw in the Romans passage. What that means is their reference is their feelings now, not what God has said, 
It's just their feelings. It's kind of like trying to find your way out of the forest at night with nothing to guide you but your feelings. How are you going to do? Not well. You have no light. You have no map. You have no compass. You will just keep going around in circles in the dark. And this is what is true now of many people in our culture. But then, because life keeps not working out, you'll get mad at God. Even if you're not willing to say you believe in God, you'll still get mad at him. And you will, as it says here, harden your hearts to him. And as a heart becomes callous and hardened towards God, it moves even further away from sensitivity toward God and others, and it deepens the sensuality. You see, we were created to feel alive in the presence of God. There's no better feeling than that. So when we turn from God, we're trying to make up for that lost feeling. We're trying to feel alive any way we can. And we get pretty desperate in that. Even if it's just small ways, like just a moment of sexual pleasure, or a chemical escape, or a financial conquest, or a purchase. I mean, it's not even close to the presence of the real God, but it's about as good as we can do. But the price of feeling better, apart from God, keeps going up. In time, sensuality will demand your entire life. Here's how it's described in the verse. They have given themselves over to sensuality. And notice the extreme words, so as to not dabble, but indulge. Not in a few kinds of impurity, but in every kind of impurity. Not just with a, a little lust here and there, but with a just ongoing, continual, relentless lust for what? More. The reason is because what sensuality lacks for in quality it tries to make up for in volume. And it just gets crazy. Now, we know this by experience. Some of us have descended further down into this pit than others, but we know the power of this pull. Only Jesus has the power to pull us out of this pit because only Jesus can restore our separation from God that causes the loss of sensitivity and the pull of sensuality. We cannot climb out of this pit. If you've tried it, you know this. We must be saved from it. On our own, we will spend our life going round and round and down and down into the circles of sensuality. Now this, sadly, is our culture. In the name of my truth, having rights is replacing being right. Almost every month, I hear of a new right that I hadn't heard before. And in the name of happiness, sensuality is replacing sensitivity. But it is a futile search. On the inside, people are empty. And like us, they need Jesus Christ. Now, you may be tempted to get mad about this and where our culture is going, but I implore you, please don't get mad about this. Get sad about this. Because this is causing real pain. 
in the lives of real people that we know. Jesus said it best this way in Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. If we don't have God, we're like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep all by themselves, they're just tiger meat. It gets bloody. We need God. Without God, we are harassed. It's like life is just chasing us. And we're helpless. We can't fix it ourselves. I think those two words summarize the modern experience. Harassed and helpless and spending as much money as possible to ignore it. This is a call for compassion, not anger. This is why we love people. This is why we stand ready to help in any practical way we have. Because if we can be a part of them asking for the rope of Jesus Christ to be thrown down in the pit, man, let's grab that rope and throw it. Let's pray. Father, you have given us amazing minds. And with those minds, we have turned our back on you and we have done a lot of thinking in opposition from you. And those thoughts have brought tremendous damage and pain into our lives and into our world. So, Father, we look out and we see our culture desperately trying to come up with God alternatives and failing miserably. And we don't, we don't feel angry about that. That breaks our hearts. Because we know the power of that pit. We still feel its call. Some of us still have major limbs stuck in that pit. Father, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would break through the fog of the confusion of thinking in our culture, particularly with our friends and our neighbors, our family members, those we work with. Father, help us as we pray for them to pray rightly. Please give us opportunities this week to love the people around us and to be used by you to save them. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.